morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Galatians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we're walking through the book of Galatians, and we're in verses 1 through 7 of Galatians 4 this morning. If you were to ask someone whose teenage years were somewhere in the 90s what the most popular band, American band, was, uh, it's arguably, but most people might would have told you that a band out of Athens, Georgia, three and a half hours drive from here, it's the most uh, popular band. Anybody know who I'm talking about? R-E-M. That's right. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight losing my... Here we go. Five people knew what I was talking about right there. There we go. Well, good. We're tracking together. You know what I'm talking about. Michael Stipe. I did a little bit of internet research upon this song here, which all that means was I googled that and like for 95 seconds read the Wikipedia page on uh, this song here. And it really, from what people were saying, is, is this actually is just talking about him losing his temper, but oftentimes we interpret it as a really negative connotation. The worst possible thing that could happen is that you would lose your religion because religion's good, right? We don't want prodigal sons and prodigal daughters, right? You know, if you were to have a soundtrack to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it really could be a soundtrack that is empowered by the actual words of that REM song that we are called to lose our religion. When you understand religion in this way, as a pursuit of God, a religious devotion apart from the gospel. When we understand religion as a way that is duty without the delight of the gospel, we understand religion as something that we're trying to earn God's approval, we all must, Paul would ensure us, we must lose our religion. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it's a clear, clarion call to our hearts to understand that religion removed from the gospel, it always enslaves. Religion removed from the gospel always enslaves. Look with me the first three verses of Galatians chapter 4. I mean, Paul says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Following along Paul's argument here, he's revisiting a theme that he picked up in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 25. What's the purpose of the law? You remember he gives an image in Galatians chapter 3 that the law is a tutor that is at a point in our religious pilgrimage and our journey to Christ shows us that we fall short of God's standards or we transgress God's standards. We go beyond God's standards. So the law, by God's design, was to point us to our need for one who has perfectly kept the law. Galatians chapter 4, he's picking up that theme. He changes the metaphor. He moves from the tutor metaphor. He moves to a guardian, a manager metaphor because he's talking about an heir. Paul says, imagine there's a three-year-old or a four-year-old that through death and succession becomes the king or a queen of a kingdom. Well, that three-year-old, that four-year-old can barely get into the throne. So ultimately, he or she must have a guardian, must have a manager who is responsible for their protection. And that king, 
that queen can ultimately become a slave in his or her own kingdom. Paul says that we, apart from the gospel, can become enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about fire and water, like the elementary principles of the world? No. One of the best ways to understand Scripture when there's not clarity is to be able to expand the focus. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 helps us understand verse 3. Do you notice what Paul says there, formally? When you did not know God, as he's picking up this theme of being children, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. It seems as if Paul is saying what we should be reminded of. That Satan and his minions have this effect. They're they're wholly unoriginal. And they take God's good gifts and they pervert them. We, we, We see this not just with the law that Paul is talking about, but we see this with food, God's good gift that becomes gluttony. Sexual relationships of death do you part becomes adultery and fornication and pornography. Work that is given to us before the fall can become something that identifies us and that ultimately we give our whole life to and becomes an idol. So what Paul is saying is is that Satan has taken God's good gift of the law and makes it something that enslaves us. I love The way John Stott, that great Anglican rector from the UK, sums it up this way in this quote that you'll see on the screen. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan, in contrast, Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step, the tutor, the manager, the guardian, an interim step to man's justification, Satan uses that as the final step to his condemnation. Do you see what Paul is saying in this passage here? He is saying that religion, apart from the gospel, always enslaves us. Fast forward from Paul's words, almost 1,500 years, there was a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther in the midst of a thunderstorm that is cast off of his horse, cries out to the saint in prayer, save me, O God, interceding through that saint. And God did this radical reformation in the heart of that Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. And he began to see that there was religious bondage in the church. He didn't want to start a Protestant church, but he wanted to protest selling of indulgences, the selling and the corruption that he saw. He wanted to have a reformation in the midst of that church, and he began to see that at the heart of it was the bondage of religion apart from the gospel. So Luther's interacting with the book of Galatians begins to to expound upon this very theme that religion is this. If we obey God, he will love us. So if you do what he says, then you will be loved by God. The gospel in contrast, God has loved us through Jesus so that we can obey. Do you see the difference? One leads to bondage, one leads to trust. Religion, you should trust And what you do as a good moral person to earn the grace of God, the gospel in contrast, you should trust in the perfect sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who will ever live. Religious pursuit apart from the gospel, it ends in one of two different places. 
It ends with your despair or it ends with your pride. It ends with you despairing, saying, I can't, I can't measure up. I can't get to the end of my life and think that I've done enough because there, there, there are imperfections in my life. So how can I stand before a holy God knowing that I've done things that have dishonored Him? It ends in despair or it ends in pride. How does it end in pride? You say, look at what I have done. Look at how good of a person I am. And you look down upon people that are unbelievers. You look down upon people who aren't quite as quote-unquote, sanctified as you are. So it ends in sin, the sin of despair, the sin of pride, but ultimately what those have in common is you are enslaved. The gospel, in contrast, frees us because it reminds us we cannot live up to God's holy standard. Praise God, there is one that has. His name is Jesus, and we trust in him, and we're freed to serve God through his perfect, obedient life. Now, don't just think that this is just Paul's issue 2,000 years ago with these churches in Galatia. Don't just think that this is a Protestant, Catholic conversation that goes back to the 16th century that we've moved on from. Understand that this is something that we face even today, whether it's religion or gospel, which one are we going to choose? And they are those who have tremendous religious duty that is separated from the delight of the gospel. And it lives to bondage. It makes that person, well, I tell you this way, and I don't mean this I don't mean this as an indictment upon anyone in this sanctuary, but it is true. As a pastor for 20 years, there is an interesting dynamic that can occur where you can meet some people that are the most miserable and grumpiest people, and they never miss a Sunday at church. How can that be? It's religious devotion, religious duty, religious doing separated from what the gospel that is delight and joy and is not bondage but frees us. That person that sits in the pew is a part of every one of us because our default is that religious pursuit to earn our way. We, we have a default of works righteousness that ultimately says, if it's free, it's worthless. we got to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we live the American way. To do something means that you earn your way. And the gospel's the opposite. You can't earn your way. He's paid it all. And that frees us to obey him. It frees us to serve him. It frees us to be men and women who love him. Because religion removed from the gospel, it always enslaves. The contrast of verses 1 through 3, of verses 4 through 7. And this is what Paul is saying in Galatians 4. That God liberates us from our enslavement through the gospel. God liberates us from our enslavement through the gospel. Notice Paul's words. But. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Look look with me at verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. What does that phrase mean? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What what does it mean when the fullness of time had come? How do we explain that? How do we understand that? Paul, what are you talking about here, the fullness of time? Some scholars looked at this passage right here and said, maybe this speaks to the unique cultural historical factors of that Greco-Roman world that would give fertile soul for the gospel to be spread. And maybe so. Some scholars would say that that Greco-Roman world was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was a time of unprecedented peace in the Roman government that enabled it enabled roads to be built, access of travel that was hardly known before this time. So you would have Paul's first and second missionary journey largely built upon the Pax Romana. You have the uniqueness of the Greco-Roman day in which the Greek language became the unified trade language of that day. We live in a day and age where you can travel all across the world. And you can be very, very far from home, but you're not that far from someone who can speak English. In most of all contexts, English being a commerce, trade, language. So Greek was that language where Paul could write these letters and the New Testament could be written in such a way that it could uh, spread across geographical regions in a way that was almost unheard of prior to this time. And all of that might be true. All of that might be true. But you know something? We don't have the slightest idea if that's true. I don't mean that to be a disappointment to you, but ultimately, Paul doesn't tell us. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything that we might be curious to know. What does it mean in the fullness of time? I'll tell you what it means. It meant that God saw the need, and in his sovereign timetable, he sent forth his son. I'll tell you what it means. It means that the focus of the gospel is God's work and not our work. God's initiative. He saw our need and he didn't sit back and say, let them figure it out. They can come halfway, I'll meet them halfway. He didn't say that. The focus of the gospel is God's rescue mission for sinners. If you remember the television show Dateline, I think Dateline still comes on, but there was a special episode that they ran several years back It was sort of this hypothetical, what would you do if you were in this situation? The previous community that I lived in had one of these episodes filmed at a Babaloo's, the restaurant Babaloo's, and it was a robbery attempt that was all acted out. All actors, actresses that staged this robbery The outdoor patio seating was positioned in such a way that the camera was seeing what the reaction would be when these customers saw that someone was being robbed before their very eyes. So some, you can imagine, intervened. Some set back saying, I don't want to get involved. It's not my business. It could be unsafe. You can imagine that. Now what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians is definitively, God sees our sinful plight and he intervenes. 
God sees our need, and he doesn't sit back and say, you know, I created them in my image. I gave them the tree of life, and they did this. I am done with them. I'm washing my hand forevermore from them. He doesn't do that. He sees us in our need, and he sends forth his son. Do you notice the descriptors? He sent forth his son, and do you notice first that that son, Jesus, was born of a woman? What does it speak of? Well, the eternal Son of God, who had always been in relationship with the Father and the Spirit, he comes and he is born of a woman. This is Paul's way of telling us that Jesus is 100% God and he is 100% human. The math doesn't, it doesn't work out. 100% and 100%, that doesn't work out. But this is the unique God-man, God's eternal Son who is born of a virgin. Not only that descriptor, but the other descriptor, he's born under the law. As a Jewish man in that first century world, but more than born under the law, he held forth. He lived out. He faithfully fulfilled the law of God. He is perfectly righteous. What is Paul doing with these descriptors? He's saying our Savior is sufficient. Our Savior is sufficient for the rescue mission to bring us into God's family. Some of you in this room have adopted before. Some of you in this room have fostered before, and you understand that, that to be an adopted family, to be a fostering family, that, that you have to go through a lot of helpful hoops. There are going to be financial disclosures. There are going to be interviews. You have to list references. Those references are called. You have several interviews that are going to occur. You're going to have a home study where a social worker comes into your house and looks at every nook and cranny of your house to see, is this house suitable? for an adoptive son or daughter or a foster child that you're going to take into your home. And many of you know that process takes, it doesn't take hours, it takes weeks, it doesn't take weeks, it takes months oftentimes to make sure that you as an adoptive parent, as an adoptive family, a fostering family, have the right criteria to be able to bring a son or a daughter into your home. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's saying, here's the criteria. Here is how Jesus is uniquely equipped and uniquely qualified to bring you into the family of God. You see the divinity of Christ, you see the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. It all points to his qualifications. Notice with me that if he had not been human, he could not have redeemed humanity. If he had not been righteous he could not have redeemed the unrighteous and if he had not been God's son then we could not become sons of the most high God in his righteousness in his humanity and his divinity are the unique expectations and qualifications that say he is the one who can wholly bring us into the father's family so notice with me that the focus of the gospel is God's work, not our work. And notice with me that the gift of the gospel is God's adoption by His Spirit. Again, look with me in your copy of God's Word. Look at with me in verse 6 and 7 here. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through the Father. What, what is Paul saying? That when you put your faith in Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, his divinity and his humanity, his work upon the cross, that you receive 
adoption by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit seals you. It brings you into God's family. You don't receive half of the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. You don't receive 25%. And then if you do this and this and this, you get the next 75%. They're not super unleaded Christians and regular unleaded Christians. You, as a child of God, receive all of the Spirit at that moment of justification. Now, through your life, you can grieve the Spirit. You can be disobedient to the Spirit. But you receive all of the Spirit. And so you're able to cry out to your Heavenly Father, Abba Father, because you're a part of His family. You don't have to wait for that. You have a familiar relationship with the Creator, the infinite Creator of all of humanity, all that exists. You can call Him Abba. Now, some of you know that Aramaic word can be translated daddy. I did a child. And the intimacy of saying daddy, but it also was a word that adults would use. And it could be translated father, dear father. 2,000 years ago, if you heard Abba, it would would mean daddy. It would would mean the child who is sleeping at night and is, is awoken suddenly and runs into her dad's room and says, daddy, 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 something's under the bed. But that same daughter who grows up and finishes college and is going to two different interviews that ultimately are going to pave the way for what she does with her career, and she's at that crux in that moment, at that fork in the road, she picks up the phone and she says, Daddy, I need to talk to you. You see the intimacy. You see the security that we're able to call him Abba Father. Islam has 99, 99 terms that refer to God. The mighty one, the holy one, but never in the Quran will you see God referred to as Father. Only Christianity dares, dares to say that you can call the infinite, holy, mighty God Daddy. Dear Father, I know that's a loaded term. I know in this sanctuary here, there there is something about hearing Daddy, there's something about hearing Father that brings up emotions, and it's been an obstacle in your own relationship. Can I just call him something else? When the disciples say, when you pray, say, Our Father, well, what if the truth of the matter is every person in this room is parented by imperfect moms and dads. And at times in life, the strain and the estrangement can occur between an earthly son and daughter and an earthly father. But I want you to hear that the answer to the pain of earthly relationships isn't to throw out the title father. It is to lean into the fact that while every father on earth is full of faults and sinful, that when you cry out, Abba, Father, you're crying out to a faultless, sinless father. He, as your father, can never leave you. He, as your father, cannot disappoint you. He, as your father, is a perfect 
Father who is always with you, caring for you in a perfect way. Even his discipline, even his love and his tenderness and his care is perfect in all of its manifestations. So we don't throw out Father, we lean into the perfection of our Heavenly Father. There's others of you that are walking through Paul's letters and you say, what's all this stuff with sons? Come on, Paul, get to the 21st century here. I'm a son, I'm a son, I'm a son, I'm a son, I'm a son. What about, what about all of us? What about gender-inclusive language right here? Why can't we just say sons and daughters? Paul, sons and daughters. Paul, come on. Get with the times. Now, obviously, any female that trusts Jesus is, is not going to become a son in heaven. You're a daughter in heaven. But before we just, every time we see sons, say sons and daughters, we might want to understand what the cultural context of what Paul is talking about here. And in that first century world, there was something about the relationship of the son that is unique to hear today before we throw it out. I was helped this week. I was reading a pastor that talked about one of his church members who grew up in a non-Western, patriarchal society. She would go back home, and there were daughters in the family, but there was one son. And that one son was ultimately promised the majority of the inheritance. The majority of the family estate was going to that son. And so anytime the conversation would come up, it was just a reminder that I'm a second-class citizen of this family here. And really, uh, that really nothing matters unless you are the son. She becomes a Christian. She's reading Paul's letters through her non-Western patriarchal background and then all of a sudden something clicks to her she realizes what paul is saying here that often in our western culture we completely miss in the equality of sons and daughters because she's always heard you're not a son you're not a son you're not a son you're not a son and here paul is saying that when you trust in Christ, you become a son of the Most High God, which means there's no second-class citizens. That all that the Father can give becomes yours. That she could become a son. That you could become a son. It was revolutionary because ultimately it is saying that all, is, that, all that is the Father's is yours in and through the Son of God's work for you. One of the things that happens in, in my life that I'm sure happens in, in your life also, is, especially when your kids are younger, is you'll get home. Sometimes it's a late meeting. Sometimes you've got something going on and you get home. And one of the routines at my house is no matter how late it is and if the boys are asleep, I walk into their rooms. And oftentimes I'll walk in and one of the boys has kicked off the blanket. I'm moving around in his sleep. Pull the covers up over him. I'll adjust the pillow under his head. Oftentimes there's one of the boys that was staying up late and he's got a book that he fell asleep reading. Nightlight is on by his bed. The book is pressed up against his neck. I pull the book away. I cut off the light. In that moment it's rare for me not to just pray over my boys, no matter how 
stressful life is, no matter how difficult, that, that moment, there's this unbelievable, irrepressible, unexplainable feeling of absolute love that I have for Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan. That is more real than anything else that I've ever experienced. And I'm a sinful dad. I'm a dad that has faults and shortcomings. But what if I could tell you? What, what if I could tell you that there was a faultless father, a sinless father, who desires to bring you into his family so that you, through his son's finished work, could cry out through the Spirit of God that resides in you, Abba, Father. What if I could tell you that he is your security even when the future seems uncertain because you are his beloved? What, what if I could tell you that he is your identity? That you don't have to perform. You don't have to strain to be impressive because you are loved. You are his beloved. What if I could tell you that any of you in this room who would turn from self and trust in your Savior, you could fall asleep at night and rest easy knowing that the eternal creator of the universe looks at you and at the very core of his identity is a love for you, this child. You are his beloved. So rest easy in your identity in him, your security in him. Rest easy knowing that you're a beloved child of the Most High God. Let us pray. So God, it is a remarkable truth that we can rest in our identity in the work of your son that we don't have to strain and perform and try but there is a humble confidence and security in you Lord we thank you for the gospel we thank you for what it contrasts against and the hope and definition that it gives us even today. And I pray for the person that just has no earthly idea what I'm talking about. That is trying to find love in all the wrong places. To know that they can be loved by you. And they're loved by you in the sending of the, your son and you desire to bring them into your family. I pray for the person who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord, that they would turn to you. I pray for those of us that are in this room that know you as Savior, know you as Lord, but we, we revert back to our old identity and we're enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to religious pursuit. We're enslaved to trying to do and do and do and do. There's no assurance. There's no confidence. We can rest in your Son. We can rest in our identity. So I pray that we will confess and we would rest in whose we are. 
in your Son and our Savior that we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.